0: Welcome to Felon, True Crime Podcast. In this, the eighth episode, we explore a series of violent crimes that occurred in Western Australia, the memory of which still haunts the lives of many to this day. There will be descriptions of violence and adult themes throughout this episode, so again, listen to discretion is advised.
1: And then what did you do? I struck him with the head.: Where? On the head Whereabouts on the head? On the temple, First, first row on the temple On the left temple? Yes mm-hmm. How many times did you, and I think I should say the witness indicated um, with his finger the um, temple just to above the left eye um, how many times did you hit her with the hatchet on the head? Three to four times. Three or four times. Where else besides the that particular place? On the front of the head. What? The front part. On the front mm-hmm. of the forehead. The witness indicating with his fingers the <coughs> front of the forehead. So that was the first blow. Well, now what were the other blows? More heavy ones. More what? Heavy one. What do you mean by more savage ones? With the front, the main hatchet. Mm -hmm. The point. With this? With the chopping edge of the hatchet?
0: Perth, the capital of Western Australia. During the 1950s, it was described as being more like a big country town, rather than a city. Neighbours knew each other. Cars were left parked in the driveway and streets, with the key still in the ignition. Front doors were left unlocked. House windows were left wide open, day and night. In January of 1959, in the peak of summer, residents within the city and outlying suburbs slept with the doors and windows open, in an attempt to cool their dwellings during the above-average temperatures the city was experiencing at the time. It wasn't unusual to find residents sleeping outdoors on balconies, porches, and even on the front yard. People had a laid-back approach to home security. Crime was low, and it seemed that everyone trusted those around them. But it wouldn't be long before a string of violent and seemingly unrelated crimes would make them question this trust and turn a once quiet and peaceful city into a panicked frenzy. Burglaries, car thefts, and reports of peeping toms escalated in the areas surrounding the suburb of Nedlands Netherlands in the late 1950s. Between 1958 and 1963, crimes became more violent when a series of hit-and-runs involving women being struck by a motor vehicle claimed the life of one victim and severely injured seven. During this same period of time, Six women were attacked by an unknown intruder in the middle of the night while they slept. Three of these six suffered such horrific wounds that they did not survive. In 1963, six victims were shot by a mystery assailant with a .22 caliber rifle, four of which suffered fatal wounds. There seemed to be no rhyme or reason to these attacks, and they occurred in such random bursts that it was assumed the different crimes were carried out by different perpetrators. During this reign of terror, Perth went into lockdown. Residents abandoned their carefree approach to home security and purchased heavy door locks. They armed themselves with a range of weapons and many bought pet dogs. So great was the fear that even during the blistering heat of summer, in the time before air conditioners, residents slept with windows and doors shut tight preferring to suffer the discomfort of the stifling heat than to risk the chance of being the next victim. The 30th of January, 1959, approximately 2.30am. A dark figure slips quietly through an open window of a stranger's home and steps slowly across the room. He can hear the faint breathing of the occupant. As he moves closer towards the sleeping stranger. His eyes take time to adjust, but he can now see the unsuspecting woman sprawled contently in her bed. Sensing a foreign presence, the woman stirs from the blissful ignorance of her dreams to the unfolding nightmare. Through a haze of semi-consciousness, her heart instantly skips as her blurry eyes snap into focus on a dark figure standing over her near the side of the bed. With a gasp of terror, she sits upright. This sudden movement provokes the dark figure, and he grabs at her. She screams and fights the best she can against her silent attacker, but he is stronger. She gouges at his face, but this merely serves to fuel the fire of rage burning inside. He unleashes an onslaught of violence, thrusting a knife into her face, neck and chest. She screams as each savage blow pierces her over and over and then it stops. Her screams fade to a dull moan. The moan soon fades to silence, and Penina Berkman is gone. Two months prior to this attack on Penina Berkman, a mysterious event occurred in a house in the nearby suburb of Apple Cross. In the early hours of the 25th of November, 1958, 15-year-old Molly MacLeod's parents woke to the sound of footsteps coming from Molly's room. They rushed to find her staggering around her bedroom, mumbling, retching, and bleeding from a head wound. There was no sign of who or what had inflicted a blow to the girl. Her parents eventually decided she must have had a nightmare and fallen out of bed, striking her head in the fall. But... Penina Berkman's death would indicate something far more sinister than a fall from a bed as being the cause. This would be the first in a series of violent break-ins in which an offender would leave a number of victims in his wake. The 8th of August, 1959. 17-year-old nursing student, Alex Duncan, was asleep in her flat in the suburb of Nedlands. Alex woke to the sound of someone rummaging in her room without warning, an intruder delivered a savage blow to her head and fractured her skull. Alex survived the attack but spent 6 weeks in hospital and would experience a severe type of epilepsy for the rest of her life. As brutal as this attack was, it would pale in comparison to what would follow just months later. The 20th of December 1959. 22-year-old chocolate company heiress Gillian Brewer was sleeping in a flat in the western suburb of Perth, Cottesloe. While she slept, an unknown man crept into her room. Her fiancé had visited with her earlier in the night, but he had left her sleeping alone. The following morning, he returned and found the front door locked, her dog barking frantically. He knocked on the window. No response. Accessing the front door with his key, he entered and made his way towards the bedroom. The bedroom door was shut. This struck him as odd, as it was often left open. As he made his way into the room, a disturbing scene was waiting for him. Gillian Brewer had been butchered. Police found a bloody hatchet that had been thrown over the back fence and a pair of scissors in Gillian's flat that also contained traces of blood. Gillian had been struck 12 to 13 times with the hatchet. Her breasts, genitals, and her head were hacked. The flat side had been used to strike her stomach, thighs and throat. A blow had severed her windpipe. So aggressive was the attack that the hatchet handle had split from the force. There was also signs that the scissors had been used to stab her around five more times. Due to the violent nature of the attack and Gillian's social standing, the murder attracted widespread media coverage as police worked around the clock to solve the string of attacks. 7th of April 1961 Detectives investigating the case Stumbled on a break that they had been looking for 19 year old Daryl Raymond Beamish Was taken into custody for sexual offences against young children He was known to police as being a prowler and petty thief While holding Beamish for questioning In unrelated matters Detectives turned their focus to the murder of Gillian Brewer Beamish had contracted cerebral meningitis as a baby, which left him deaf and mute. His questioning was conducted with the aid of a sign language interpreter. Following intense interrogation, Beamish broke down and offered a confession to the hatchet slaying of Gillian Brewer. Detectives had their man for the high-profile case, and Daryl Beamish was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. This sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. With this sentence, the public breathed a sigh of relief. The killer had been captured and convicted, and life slowly returned to normal. But there was no evidence linking Daryl Beamish to any of the other crimes. And soon after being locked away, similar attacks continued. The third of March, nineteen sixty two, in the suburb of Nedlands. Twenty three year old Anne Melvins was fast asleep, and she woke to an unknown attacker wrapping a towel around her neck and tightening it. She struggled, but with the pressure of the towel, she slipped into unconsciousness. The attacker tied her arms with stockings. A reprieve came when the attacker was distracted by a noise and left the room to investigate. Anne regained consciousness and screamed, which caused her attacker to flee into the night. The 29th of December, 1962. Peggy Fleury woke to the dark silhouette of a stranger standing over her bed and removing her pajamas. She screamed, but the intruder struck her in the face with a torch, then his fist. She continued to scream, and the attacker again ran off into the night. Peggy required facial surgery, and would spend four days in hospital. The 15th of February, 1963. As with the previous victims, a silent figure slipped into the home of Lucy Madrill, The familiar scenario played out and lucy woke to find a mystery intruder standing over her bed the intruder pounced on her and clasped his hands tight around her throat she was quickly throttled to unconsciousness as she struggled for life once unconscious a lamp cord was used to strangle her her lifeless body was then violated she was dragged from her house into the front yard where her body was violated yet again, this time with a whiskey bottle. She was left naked with the whiskey bottle left cradled in her arm. The 15th of June, 1963. Carmel Reed stirred to a strange sound in her room. As she sat upright in her bed to investigate the source, an umbrella was thrusted into her. She screamed, causing her mystery assailant to again escape into the night. This series of attacks was not the only threat to the residents of Perth during this period of time. In the month prior to Lucy Madrill being strangled and her lifeless body being strewn on the front lawn, a gunman had wreaked havoc in nearby suburbs during a deadly killing spree, fueling the already high level of hysteria within the community. Rowena Reeves and Nicholas August sit chatting in a parked car. The couple recount the festivities of the previous hours, and they share a drink. During this lighthearted banter, a silhouette of a figure on the opposite side of the road snaps Rowena from her conversation. Sensing her distraction, Nicholas whips around to see the same dark figure. He's staring into the car and standing motionless. They call out for him to move on, but still he remains unmoving and still staring. Nicholas throws a bottle from the car at the silent figure. It smashes near him on the roadside and now he starts to move. Slowly he raises an object that he's been cradling. With one arm outstretched towards the couple and the other arm bent and tucked to his chest, he points an object the pair can now see. Staring at them is something far more concerning than the eyes of a stranger. It's the barrel of a rifle Aimed squarely at them. He fires. Acting on instinct, Rowena pushes Nicholas's head to the side, but the bullet grazes him and strikes her in the arm. The pair speed off down the road while the gunman discharges another round at the fleeing vehicle. The twenty sixth of january nineteen sixty three. The night began when an intruder stumbled across a .22 calibre rifle and ammunition during a burglary in the Perth suburb of Como. Gun in hand, he took to the streets, bent on destruction. Nicholas August and Rowena Reeves were the first to find themselves in his sights. They escaped with their lives, but others would not be so fortunate. 29-year-old Brian Weir lay sleeping with his head facing an open balcony door to escape the heat of his flat. His head was visible from the street below, a factor that determined his fate. The gunman set him in his sights and shot him in the head. A friend would later find him writhing in pain and covered in blood. He was taken to the hospital and lived with severe brain damage for three years before finally succumbing to his injuries. The roommate of John Sturkey woke to the sound of moaning coming from the veranda. John had been sleeping on the outside balcony of his boarding house due to the heat when an unknown assailant aimed a rifle at his head and shot him point blank. He died soon after his roommate came to his aid. At about 4am 55 year old George Wormsley answered a knock at the door. Staring out into the darkness, he was unaware that he was in the sights of a gunman, standing in the shadows. A shot was fired, and it hit George in the center of the forehead. He collapsed. His wife and daughter rushed to his side. In a matter of minutes, he was dead. The 27th of January, 1963. Police responded to the shootings with an unprecedented manhunt. A spent .22 shell was located and police went about checking 60,000 rifles and fingerprinting 30,000 males over the age of 12. Police worked around the clock, but they were unable to establish any leads. Another killer was still on the loose. Panic again swept Perth, and residents locked themselves indoors. Media and residents dubbed the unknown assailant, the Night Caller. The 10th of August 1963, a similar style shooting would occur in the suburb of Keith. 18 year old university student Shirley MacLeod was babysitting for the Dowd family, upon returning home the Dowds discovered Shirley slumped on the couch and presumed she had fallen asleep, on closer inspection they discovered that she had been shot in the head, police were alerted and they were convinced it was the same shooter as the Australia Day Massacre. The night caller had struck again. Later in the month of August, 1963, an elderly couple stumbled across a rifle hidden in the shrub area besides Rookwood Avenue in the suburb of Mount Pleasant. The couple sensing that this was suspicious quickly alerted the police. Upon testing the rifle, police were able to verify it was the same gun used in the murder of Shirley MacLeod. With this information, they put a dummy gun in the place of the one they had discovered and they secured it to a tree using fishing line. Police camped out the scene, hoping the gunman would return to collect his hidden rifle. The trap was set and they waited. The 1st of September, 1963, 17 days after the discovery of the rifle. Police camping out the scene finally got the breakthrough they needed. Just after midnight, a car approached the hiding place and Detectives Peter Skihan and Bill Hawker crawled from their camouflaged surveillance spot. They watched and waited as the car came to a stop and a figure stepped out from it, making his way to where the rifle had been. The detectives swooped on the mystery man and they wrestled him to the ground. A 33-year-old Eric Edgar Cook Eric Cook was born on the 25th of February, 1931, to teenage parents, Christine and Vivian Cook. His father was an abusive alcoholic, and he beat Eric and his mother regularly. His two younger siblings were spared these beatings, and Eric often tried to protect his mother from his father's brutality. His mother, Christine, would often sleep at her place of employment, the Como Hotel, to avoid coming home. Eric would hide underneath his house or roam the neighbourhood. During his early years, Eric Cook spent time in orphanages and foster care due to his dysfunctional home life. Cook was born with a hair lip and cleft palate. Attempts at surgery were made when he was young. However, he was left with a slight facial deformity and speech impediment, causing him to speak in a nasally mumble. His obvious handicaps made him the target of bullying at school. At the age of 6, Cook was expelled from primary school for stealing a teacher's purse. Cook left school at 14 and began working as a delivery boy. He would give his weekly wages to his mother to help support his family, as his father didn't work. At the age of 17, Eric started to commit petty crime and acts of vandalism. He served his first stint in jail for burning down a church after he was rejected from joining the choir. He would often sneak into houses and steal valuables. He also took pleasure in destroying personal items of the occupants, cutting up clothing and furniture. It was later noted by police that he would commit strange acts while in the homes he robbed. A detective familiar with Cook's crimes once stated, If the owners had a goldfish, he would put the goldfish in the pan on the gas stove. People would come home to the goldfish being boiled. Eric Cook was angry at the world, and he was venting his rage on those he considered more fortunate than himself. He relished in the crimes, and would often cut out newspaper clippings and show them to acquaintances, in an attempt to gain respect. On the 24th of May, in 1949, police caught up with Cook, matching his fingerprints to a number of cases, and he was sentenced to three years in prison for two charges of stealing, seven counts of breaking and entering and four counts of arson. Soon after his release from prison, he joined the Australian Army. It was during this time in the Army he was given firearm training and showed a natural ability for marksmanship. But his career in the Army would be short-lived as they soon discovered his criminal history. Upon this discovery, he was promptly discharged. Soon after his discharge from the Army, he was fellowshiped by a local Methodist church and it was here that he met Sally Laven, a 19-year-old waitress. The two were married on the 14th of October, 1953, and children soon followed, four boys and three girls. Following his marriage to Sally, Eric Cook soon fell back into his old ways of criminal activities, and he was arrested and charged a number of times as a peeping Tom and finally for stealing a car he was sentenced to two years hard labor. After his release, he continued with similar crimes. However, he learned that he needed to cover his tracks and started to wear white gloves to prevent leaving evidence in the form of fingerprints. When detectives arrested him at the scene of the hidden rifle, he was wearing the very same gloves. With Eric Cook now in custody, Police pressed him about the murder of Shirley MacLeod, who they knew had been shot with the rifle that was left hidden in the bush. A spent .22 cartridge was also found in the back of his car. At first, Cook claimed to have known about the rifle due to stopping to relieve himself one day and stumbling upon it, but the police knew better. His car had been seen driving past the area days prior, but he had not left the vehicle police knew that they had the man responsible for Shirley McLeod's death. At this point, officers were hoping to wrap up the case of Shirley McLeod's murder, but the similarities between the murder of Shirley and the Australia Day shootings were not lost on police. Following questioning, Cook confessed to Shirley's murder, but he stopped short of claiming responsibility for any other crimes. Officers that had previous run-ins with Cook were brought in to assist in questioning. It was hoped that if they could have police present who had a rapport with him, he would open up. One of these officers was Detective Baker. Over the years, Cook had been in and out of the police station a number of times. He had become known to police almost affectionately as Cookie, and was seen as nothing more than a petty thief and prowler. But his ties to the death of Shirley MacLeod changed this and Detective Baker thought it necessary to press him further on the Australia Day killings. Detective Baker was blunt with Cook and told him straight. Cooky, you're going to hang you know, there's no doubt about it. You've got a wife and kids, think of them and then think about whether you're going to be dragged to the gallows like a mongrel dog or you're going to go there like a man. These words struck a chord with Cook, and he let out a wail. He then reached for a pen from Baker's top pocket and began to write the details of his previous crimes, crimes that would shock even the detectives. He admitted to the shootings on the 26th of January, but this confession was only scratching the surface to the extent of his crimes. In the following three weeks, Eric Cook, escorted by police, led them to various suburbs of Perth. Recounting the details of his crimes at the scenes where they occurred, he took them to the locations of the shootings, but he also took them to another significant location. It was where he had carried out his first act of violence. The 12th of September, 1958. 26-year-old Nell Schneider woke up in the emergency ward of Perth Hospital. Nell's last memory of the evening was riding her bike along the road and then everything went black. Her body was discovered in a bloody mess on the side of the road. The newspapers at the time reported a story of a maniac behind the wheel of a stolen car which was involved in a hit and run but this would not be an isolated case. From 1958 through to 1960 Seven women were struck and severely injured by cars travelling at high speeds, the locations of which were all shown to police by Eric Cook during his grim tour of his crimes. Cook had been behind the wheel for each. His explanation was simply that he wanted to hurt someone. One of the hit-and-run cases that Cook described to police involved the death of Rosemary Anderson, a death for which her boyfriend, John Button, had been charged and convicted for. On the night of the 9th of February, 1963, John and Rosemary had been out in John's car when they became involved in an argument. Rosemary exited the car and stormed off along the road, disappearing from John's view around a bend and under a train bridge. After some time, John drove around the bend to catch up to her and discovered her unconscious body lying on the ground in a pool of blood. He carried her to his car and rushed her to the hospital. ...but she was unable to be saved. Police soon turned their attention to John... ...as their suspect... ...and pressured him to sign a confession. In an emotional and broken state... ...he signed it... ...and was charged and sentenced... ...with her murder. During his time in prison... ...he maintained his innocence. Eric Cook would give details of Rosemary's death... ...and was able to show police... ...the location where he had struck her. Despite his confession... John Button remained in jail. Authorities claiming that Eric Cook was a liar and an unreliable source. Among Eric Cook's confessions also came the grim descriptions of several violent assaults he carried out on women in their homes, of which include the stabbing murder of Panina Berkman, the strangulation and violation of Lucy Madrill, and the hatchet killing and mutilation of Gillian Brewer. With these grim revelations would come the realisation that yet another man besides John Button had been sentenced for a murder committed by Cook. Darrell Beamish had been tried and sentenced for the slaying of Gillian Brewer, and was currently in prison. An appeal process would be put into motion for the two men, but it would be a number of years before they would receive a pardon for the crimes they were wrongly convicted of. From 1958 through to 1963, Cook committed 22 violent crimes, eight of which resulted in death. Following a three-day trial, Eric Edgar Cook was found guilty of willful murder and sentenced to death by hanging.
1: In the middle of the controversy over the hanging of Eric Edgar Cook, people in the streets of Perth gave their opinions about the execution which was to take place later that week. Do you think that Eric Edgar Cook should hang? Yes, definitely. Why do you feel that way? Uh, Because he's a a vicious and violent murderer and he doesn't deserve any sympathy from anybody whatsoever. In spite of the fact that anything these Parsons might get together and uh, hold meetings and protest meetings, I have no sympathy with Cook or that type of person whatsoever. Yes, I definitely do. Until he is hung, there will always be a reminder to the people he wronged that um, Uh, the book can't be closed Uh, every time that something comes up about him um, if they want to let him off with a bit of leniency or put him in a mental asylum or talking about his family
0: uh, 8am on the 26th of October 1964 in Fremantle Prison Cook was hanged
1: Are you in favour of hanging Eric Edgar Cook? No, I am not why do you say that? Because I don't think it's a Christian idea at all. I don't think the two blacks make a white. And, uh, and where did you hit the woman with that? On the... As I, I mentioned, on the front of the head. And the on the front, on you, you the mentioned barren, it sideways. Do you mean... Uh, do you mean mm, you you chopped barren. it along there? No, no. It, um for 30 seconds i i had struck her me three more times and uh, she she was out, out of the way but um and i proceeded to choose the dog what do you she was, mean she was out of the way oh well, she uh, was, she was conscious or unconscious she was unconscious yeah so
0: the uh, so the You'd finished with the woman's At the head? At
1: the moment, When you uh, soothed the dog? Yes. She was lying in it. Ah, uh, she was writhing a bit. After you soothed the dog, what did you do then? I, then I, I, took back, reefed back the, the sheathing that was over her and started uh, to, with a on the body. and where did you strike her with a hatchet on the body a couple of times around near the rib. a couple of times around the ribs around the below the below the breast yeah. mm-hmm. and once um, uh, in, in her private part, in her community. in the what Five in her And, giant. and, yes. and how um, heavy were these blows, how hard were they were you? Quite, quite hmm? uh, Were they all as hard as each other, roughly? No. Which were the most severe blows that you gave? I think the one I hit her between the legs was the most severe blow. Mm. I suppose you'd Completed what you felt compelled to do, had you? You felt compelled to murder this woman, or you decided to murder the woman and with the hatchet. And I suppose you decided you'd done that. No. Then I gave her another hit on the on the head and split, and in the handle of the hatchet. You gave another split, another hit on the head. How did you? um, With the flat of the hatchet. Yes. Whereabouts on the head? Um. Did you hit her? I you cannot know? okay, yeah. uh, I had, uh, at that time, Mr. Wilson. I never, I, I hadn't shown my thoughts.